Welcome to episode 32 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your co-host, Mary, and joining me is the guy that takes Civil War nerdery to a whole new level by sitting outside on a Tuesday evening and smoking an Abraham Lincoln cigar that has been soaked in bourbon and wearing a Civil War t-shirt that has various battles on it, also known as Darren, Ooh. or Army of the Shannon Darren. Wow, that's the longest intro you've ever done. Maybe it was a little bit more creative. I don't know. I was trying to be a little bit more. It wasn't tonight. creative, no, but it was good. It was good. It was pretty good. Not bad. Okay, well, welcome. Good to see you again. How are things? <laughs> At least it wasn't as bad as the intro I did for our first episode. Oh, God. God, that was brutal. I just want to bang my head against a wall when I hear that. It's fun cringery going back and listening to that one. For any of our listeners who might be new to the podcast, if you haven't listened to our first episode, please give it a listen. Don't judge my horrendously bad intro. It is... wasn't as bad as far as you know. I told you that. How are things? How are you? How, how have it been a long time since last Saturday? How yeah. are things going? Oh, they're good. The weather here is beautiful. I think it's pretty much the same here as it is where you are, able to sit outside and have a beer and, and all that. So that's nice. It was great today. It was a good day. Yes. It was a so good day. Fire that stogie up. Yeah. Good southern tobacco. Ooh. Good stuff. <laughs> Ooh. But it was good. But it was good. So yeah, so we're, we're back at it again. We uh, had a good, good live last week coming off the Good podcast and now we're gonna be doing another one we we're at the beginning of the war last time now we're going pretty much to the end of the war so we're kind of doing the old uh the whole full 180 here so as we're going to talk about the battle of five forks which is a really good one and i think it's one that people don't really spend a lot of time studying on it's wedged in between petersburg and appomattox but it's an important one because they call it mary the waterloo of the confederacy they, they do. do they do but more importantly the first thing to get to is what are we drinking tonight well, speaking of Waterloo, I'm drinking from Stellwagen Beer Company. It's called 1230 Flight. And there's zero significance to this podcast. I just wanted to drink this one. So, And I'm drinking it out of my Joshua Chamberlain coffee mug from T Joshua's Tavern in Maine because he's in this. Josh's in this one. Nice. I am drinking Shut-In IPA from Square Brew here in Godrich. And I chose Shut-In because it sounds kind of like Shut Out, which is basically what happens to Warren after this battle and his career in the Army of the Potomac. And I'm drinking it out of my Abraham Lincoln mug because I don't have any mugs of the generals that were here. I would love a Warren mug because I'm team Warren. But I chose Abraham mm -hmm. Lincoln because at the time that this battle happens on April 1st, 1865, he's actually visiting Grant at City Point. So mm -hmm. he's sort of there. Um, Do you think when they were at City Point on the old River Queen, they did a little bit of shad fishing? I think they might have. Although they might have we do know that there was one party that was doing some shad fishing. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later on. There's a little shad. We're going to talk about a little shad later on, as a matter of fact, Mary, as we're going to talk about that later in this battle. And I think when people think about the Battle of Five Forks, they think about George Pickett, who, mm -hmm. who was a big part of this. This is what they think about. But I think as we talk about this, it's just one piece of it. There's a lot of there, fish in the sea besides the shad with there, Five Forks, Mary. There is. So... We're not. We're going to be mainly talking about Five Forks, but there's actually a little bit of foreplay that happens before we get to Five we Forks. We have to. We have to talk about that. So we'll set this. <laughs> we have to set this. Okay. We're going to set the stage a little bit and kind of talk about kind of where they got to this point. Mm -hmm. We haven't really talked about this far late in the battle. So it's a couple weeks ago at Bentonville, but this is kind of that extension of Bentonville. It doesn't really affect it too too much, but it sort of does. So let's take it back a little bit. This is the tail end of the nine month Petersburg campaign 
you know, of the Ulysses S. Grant's Overland campaign that ultimately ended in Petersburg, right? So it's the, right at the end of Petersburg and the beginning of Appomattox campaign. They split them up. Basically, again, U.S. Grant, his trench warfare strategy is basically wearing down the Rebs. He wants to take Richmond, ends up having to go around to Petersburg, and he's going to basically try to bleed them out is what he's going to try to do. Cut off their supplies from Petersburg and Richmond. He's going to basically try to bleed them. So February 1865, those Rebel lines are getting stretched out thin. I mean, they're getting really, really stretched out thin. Kind of like your patience lately, by the way. I'm not just going to say. But but, but that's true, though. What they're going to do is Lee knows that it's finite. This is close to the end of the line for him. So he knows that his defenses are eventually going to become basically untenable. The line's thin. He knows eventually they're going to have to basically vacate the dance floor from Petersburg because oh, they just can't stay there, big, right? Big time. And the desertions are at an all-time high in the Army of Northern Virginia when this is happening, too. Like, mm-hmm. he's, you know, Grant, as you said, is trying to bleed them. But the Army of Northern Virginia is doing that pretty well on their own with lack of supplies well, as well as, like, the men just being like, fuck this and vacating well, the Lee's, dance floor. Lee's thinking, well, he's like, I can't stay here, so... You know, I like maybe we'll do it to try to get out of do an offensive. They're thinking about maybe making a run for Dansville or maybe Lynchburg. But the grand plan, like we said before, he want, he really in his dream of dreams would be to try to hook up with Joseph Johnston. Mm-hmm. But he's dealing with Sherman down in the Carolinas. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So you know, Lee's going to go to Davis. He's going to say, "I'd like to try to get the hell out of here." What do you think? And Davis is like, "Well, no, no, no. You you got to stay and defend. You got to stay. You got to defend Richmond. You you can't go." So, not to mention, this is February. So the road conditions suck. So Lee ain't going anywhere anyway he's kind of stuck there he knows if he's gonna stay there he can't just sit he has to do something aggressive i can't run i can't sit i gotta fight right so he's gonna come up with this one idea which is gonna lead up to that battle of fort stedman this is there's a series of little battles that take place that lead up to five books we're gonna hit a little bit here and there so March 25th, you know, they attack Fort Stedman and basically the Rebs have a little bit of success. They, you know, they, they do pretty well for a little bit. They eventually get pushed back. But you know what's going on there? They're losing soldiers again and they don't, they ain't got any. So for mm. every one of these little battles they do, it's, it's a waste. It's pissing in the wind. Yeah, Lee knows it. Every you know, time they have an engagement, they're losing more men. And that's on top of the men that are leaving every day because of, of desertion. So it's mm-hmm. not looking good for the Army of Northern Virginia at this point. So every engagement no. they are in is like, and they're, engaged, they're they're doing a lot of these right now. Say what you will about Robert E. Lee, okay? But he's not stupid, right? And so he knows that U.S. Grant is planning on smothering them, and he knows he's got to do something quick. After Fort Stebbin ultimately fails, he knows he's – at this point, he knows he's screwed. So – because he, he knows Lee he, – he knows Grant now was going to come after him. He knows it's mm-hmm. a matter of time. Little did he know that the day before Stebbin, that Grant was already planning on an attack. You know, he was going to basically – decide within a week he was going to basically attack to cut off the railroad and supply and communication line to petersburg and richmond and so ultimately what he's trying to do is he's going to cut out their supplies kind of like what sherman wanted to do right there's really one place he's going to really hit and that's that south side railroad there's one in and out left to petersburg lee knows he's got to defend it grant knows he's got to get it after stedman ultimately fails lee knows he's coming to get him he knows he is Grant's going to begin to move the chess pieces on the chessboard at this point. He's going to pull General Ord out on a line. He's going to replace Andrew Humphrey's spot on line. He's going to basically, he wants to free up George Meade, basically attack uh, Lee's left flank and go after that railroad. So what he's going to do, he's going to try to, he comes up with a game plan. He's going to order a guy named Philip Sheridan, who we'll talk about, 
who has an awesome hat, by the way, Mary. Just going to tell you. Le- Leonard, awesome you just threw out the Leonard bat <laughs> signal with that. <laughs> That's true. And he's in the army of Shenandoah. He's a, he's a cavalry guy. We'll talk more about d- detail with him in a little bit. But he's going to basically take them. He's going to take Humphrey's second corps. He's going to take uh, Governor K. Warren's fifth corps. We're going to talk a lot about tonight, Mary. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a lot about that. And they're going to go west, young men. And they're going to try to go and get that railroad. He at least saw his army was crumbling, and he knew that that Stedman thing was going to really embolden Grant. Little did he know that he was planning on doing it anyway, but at this point, he's like, all right, I made this one little attempt. If I fell on my face, now he's going to come get me, and we're done. So, you know, fast forward now a couple of days. So it's the 29th of March, 1865. Lee realizes that the writing's on the wall. So he's going to basically send some troops west of, of his line to protect that railroad. And he's going to send our old friend George Pickett. George Pickett's got 11,000 guys. He's going to send Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry. Three divisions. A pretty, you know, pretty good run of guys. He's going to send them beyond those lines to protect that junction of five forks. Now, five forks sounds exactly what it is. It's a row with five ins and outs. But it's a pivotal place because it protects that south side railroad. And Lee tells Pickett, whatever the hell you do, you've got to protect that railroad. Yeah, hold it at go all up there, costs. You at all costs, all hazards, dare I say, Mary, yeah. right? What this is going to do is the movement of Governor K. Warren and the movement of Sheridan and the movement of Pickett is going to result in a bunch of little trembling little skirmishes. Think of like a bar fight that spills from one room to the other that leads to a big concert hall where there's a big fight. That's mm-hmm. what this is. So you're going to have two armies basically trying to get to the same place. One's trying to get to Five Forks on the South Side Railroad. One's trying to protect Five Forks on the South Side Railroad. And they're going to both race to get there to fight. And that's how it's going to be. Now, it's, it's interesting because there's some interesting cats in this one. You know, George Pickham, mm-hmm. we talked about him. He's the oldest of eight children from Richmond. He's the cousin of Henry Heath. Pronounced that right? You noticed that, Mary? Hef. Didn't say Hef? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, he studied law in Springfield, Illinois. Kind of like that other guy, right? He, interesting fact. William Herndon? No. Yeah, William Herndon, yeah. You know, that guy, no, the guy who caught the vampires. What's his name? Lincoln. Um, shall I say Lincoln, right? <laughs> and so, and but it's funny, before he got to West Point, the legend is, Mary, that Abraham Lincoln actually is the one who helped support his candidacy for West Point. Mm-hmm. That's that's what people say. Who knows? That's true. But he, allegedly, he helped secure Pickett's appointment. Um, it, everyone knows Pickett's story of West Point, popular practical joker just a fun loving guy finished dead last in the class of 1846 so he's a goat then kind of like goddard high school circa you know dead last (laughs) 2001 you know who else finished finished last at west point was also in this battle too was george custer class of 1861 after west point you know he becomes pickups becomes famous in mexico because there's that story where he carried the american flag over the parapet at the battle of chapultepec in 1847 and and he ultimately ends up joining the Confederacy when Virginia seceded after Lincoln called up those 75,000 guys. And so he's a guy who's – everybody knows him from Gettysburg and some of these other places. But he's a guy – he's kind of a kind of a wild man, but Lee does trust him up to this point. Yeah. He's very just – I mean, Pickett is one of those guys that I think he's – He's the butt of a lot of jokes and he doesn't realize it maybe. You know, that's kind of the impression I got. No, just in the movie Gettysburg, you know, where he shows up and he's like got his curls all done and all that. You know, and he's just, he's seen, I think in some ways, it's just kind of like this guy who's, you just kind of laugh at him, right? And he's, he's like, oh, can I fight? Can I fight? And look what look what happens to him at Gettysburg, right? He's he's aggressive, he is. But on the other side of the coin, the Fifth Corps, which is led at this point by Governor Kimball Warren, he's going to be moving west as well. We'll talk a lot about him as this goes on too. And he's looking to go to a place called Dinwiddie Courthouse, which is a real name place, a real place. Mm-hmm. 
Dinwiddie. The people in his initial vanguard is a guy you may have heard of named Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Yeah, I think you know, I've heard of him he's, before. He's that, he's that other guy from Maine, the guy who yeah. can juggle, you know, yeah. curiosity. <gasps> um, That's the yeah, second been, time today that you've put him down. I had to find a way to get Howard in this for you. I had oh to. Oh, my okay. God. <laughs> but, but I mean, Chamberlain, no, he's he's recently returned from, you know, from that really horrible injury he had mm-hmm. in Petersburg where he got shot with a hip and they had to use the ramrod because you read sliced and that whole crappy situation. But he survives. He's a general now because they thought he was going to die mm-hmm. and they made him a general and he survived. So he's going to basically, you know, that, that injury, you know, that, that story where he's, he gets shot with a hip and he's down. They, everybody's troops thought he died. He stuck his sword on the ground, propped himself up, and waved his soldiers to go like it's a movie. It pretty must have been cool to see. But oh, my then God. Collapsed and, you know. Crazy. Well, but he Cham- has a Chamber- lot of success, though, in this Appomattox campaign, like Chamberlain he does. does. He does. He does. You know, but, you know, if they're going to move north, Chamberlain and the guy named Charles Griffith, who's also in the you know, first division of the Fifth Corps, and he's, he's the division commander for Chamberlain. But he's gonna, they're going to move north towards intersections of a place called Boynton Flank Road and White Oak Road, which we're going to talk a lot about. Mm-hmm. And as we said before, as they're moving, they start to bump into each other, the, these arms. They do. And the, one of the first places they bump into each other is the there's the Battle of Lewis Farm on March the 29th, which is considering, considered to be the opening battle of the Appomattox campaign. The thing that, and I'm sure you found this too when you were researching, there's a lot of overlap between the Petersburg campaign and then the Appomattox campaign, which is mm-hmm. like one of the, the last campaigns of the civil war there's a lot of overlap and there's some discrepancies between which battles fall into which campaign and all that and i honestly don't know why it's not just like one big well we're gonna settle that right now this is the first one of the appomattox campaign okay lewis farm is the first battle of the appomattox campaign so you think think that's otherwise you're wrong (laughs) Um, so you know yeah lewis farm basically is the first one they bump into where Chamberlain's going to run into three brigades under Richard Anderson, led by our friend Bushrod Johnson. Good old Bushrod's um, back. You know, he is, he is. And Bushrod is there to slowly advance because they know they're coming. And, you know, Joshua Chamberlain gets injured again. He's almost gets captured at this one, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Almost a tough day for mother, they would say, right? <laughs> for old Joshua Chamberlain, you know. But the Rebs do eventually, and this is kind of a th- common theme with these battles. The, the Rebs are going to push, and they're eventually going to get pushed back really to their original position, which was on that White Oak Road. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Sheridan's cavalry is going to be under a guy named Wesley Merritt, we talked about. He's going to be basically sliding into that Dinwiddie courthouse, that place they wanted to get to. He's going to get in completely unopposed. He's yeah. just going to, he's going to slip right in. So it, what that does is it gives Sheridan a great staging point now. Because from Dinwiddie Courthouse, they, can, they have great access to Five Forks. They have great access to all the places that they need to get to. And so what that means is you have now a really a good place to bring the band together mm-hmm. and it's unopposed, which is kind of telling Sheridan, well, you know, maybe this isn't going to be that big of a deal. Maybe we're going to be okay. Grant hears that the Rebs have fallen back to that white Oak road. And now Grant's like, okay. You know, he says, I, I may, there, might, there may be an opportunity here. <laughs> you know? So he's, he's going to say, you know, he says, well, maybe we can make this a more of a major offensive push here now, because this is going to be kind of easy. So let's go full in. Sheridan's going to lead it. And let's make a real, real big push. Get everyone, to, get everyone involved, and let's get, let's get the South Side Railroad. Yeah, they get slowed up though on March thirtieth because of, and this has happened in many battles that we've discussed. The weather. There's lots of rain, and it may, has made things very difficult for the troops. And the other thing that is happening too, and this is something that will really play into Warren's story in this 
you know, leading to the end of Five Forks and all that. But he's getting very vague orders from Mead at this point, like, as to what to do. Like, Mead is telling him, don't move. But then he's like, you know, he'll tell him to do this or whatever. And Mead, if you remember during this battle, Mead and Grant are miles and miles away from it. Like, they're not there seeing what's going on. And, you know, like, Warren and Sheridan are having to kind of make decisions on their own too like but they're also waiting to hear their orders as well so on the 30th not too much happens but march 31st is when you have the battle of white oak road and i think this is a battle that i got the impression that it's not something that is discussed a lot in the appomattox campaign but it is why five forks happens like it is one of these this is very much if you look at the appomattox campaign it is a complete domino effect. If A doesn't happen, then B, then C, then D. Like, it's just this whole thing, starting with Fort Stedman. And then you have the Battle of White Oak Road on March 31st, which the roads have been turned into a complete mess from the, the rain. One soldier described it as the whole country round was on vast swamp holding fast and, like, anything on wheels you're not going to get through. Like, the infantry are having to help push wagons through the, these very, very muddy roads and streams have become raging torrents and they've taken out bridges and as we will see this is something else that is going to be a nail in what is the end of warren's career um in the aop you know yeah I mean, it's, it's interesting because this whole thing it, it's bad weather it's bad traction it's bad communication you, you can make this case for almost every battle it just seems like weather is such a great equalizer so that Battle of White Oaks Road, basically, it's it's early morning on the 31st, March of 1865, mm-hmm. Mary. You know, Lee is going to report, and, and he, he hears there's a gap that's forming in the Union line. So what happens is they – Romain Ayers is going to get pulled out. He's going to get moved, and it's going to create really a gap um, between the infantry and Sheridan's cavalry. That's going to be near uh, Dunwoody Courthouse. And so mm-hmm. Lee's going to try to exploit that. So he's going he's to take Bushrod Johnson, and he's going to – Pound the gap with old Bushrod, Mary, to that, exposed, to, that, to that exposed line. What that's going to do, it, 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 it basically leads to a fight that's going to eventually involve Ayers and Samuel Wiley Cropper, another guy we're going to mm-hmm. talk a lot about. The Union is going to get pushed back to a place called Gravelly Run, which is a fun name to say. And the Rebs eventually going to attack. They're going to get pushed back again because of Charles Wainwright. Now, this is a guy who is a, a very famous artillery guy with great history at Gettysburg. But he's going to ultimately be able to slow them down. As the day turns into afternoon, Joshua Chamberlain and Edgar Gregory's brigade, who is also brigade commander in that same that same division, are going to help push those rebs back. And what's going to happen is not only are they going to push them back, they're going to be able to cut the communication lines between Anderson and, and the White Oaks Road and pick it at five forks. So really what that's going to do, it's going to make the rebs blind. So it's going to give them an even more of an opportunity. So if you're Sheridan, you're seeing this all go down. And if this, this is playing in your, in perfect in your mind, mm-hmm. everything is going is sun, soft serve and sunshine so far. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where, this is one day too. March 31st is also where Warren has got, you know, kind of contradictory orders from Meade where Meade has told him, okay, operations are suspended, but, if you can take the White Oak Road, do it because they've figured out, you know, this is going to be another way for us to push Lee back. It's it's going to be important for us to hold that. Like the Union advance ends up being stalled by Bushrod, but Warren manages to get the position stabilized and his soldiers are going to be holding that road by nightfall. When Ayers goes in and he gets attacked by Bushrod, it could have been disastrous for the Union. Now, I don't know about you when you were doing your research, but when I was reading about this battle... 
I had the thought that I'm like, oh my God, this is something that could have completely upended the entire Appomattox campaign and set things back for Grant if Ayers had been defeated. Because what happens is Warren sees what's happening and he sends a message to Humphreys and Humphreys sends in General Nelson Miles' division forward to help hold the right flank of the Fifth Corps, which is where Ayers is. It's again, it's one of those things where they burst through and they don't have the support. They lack that brigade to push it back and they get pushed back. And this is where, where Wainwright, you know, really does well. Meanwhile, you know, uh, Sheridan is still sitting there over at the uh, Dinwiddie. Mm-hmm. Now, Sheridan, we got to talk about Sheridan real yeah, quick. Yeah, we do. Because he's an interesting cat. Albany, New York. Possibly Ohio. Ish. Possibly um, Ireland. Well, he was the son of Irish, local Irish immigrants, right? So who knows where he was from? He was he, he's now. like his grave at, at Arlington. He's just Sheridan. Just Sheridan. But, you know, <laughs> five foot five. They called him Little Phil. You know, Lincoln had that quote where he said that he was brown, chunky little chap. Was the quote he yep. called him. And he said, uh, with arms so long, he could scratch his ankles without stooping. You could do that, can't you? I am the same height as Sheridan. Yeah, you're a little taller. I'm not the same, but, but, but it's, but he, we'll talk about him and, you know, the little Phil thing's going to be interesting, but you're right though. The union does avert disaster at at, at that White Oaks Road. Yeah. But again, they don't. And so they see they made a mistake, but they survived it. This is where you get lucky in these battles. And and so things work out pretty well. Yeah. And Warren actually writes, he downplays the setback that could have happened He says the temporary result of this attack by the enemy was such as different portions of our army had experienced on many former occasions in taking up and extended lines, but our loss was not great and was probably quite equaled by the enemy. So he's saying like, this could have been fucked, but it's not. So can we just kind of like shove it aside and forget about it? Meanwhile, Grant was very critical of Warren after the battle of White Oak Road saying, I do not understand why Warren permitted the Corps to be fought in detail. When Ayers was pushed forward, he should have sent other troops to their support. But Warren does. Like, this is just, like, no, Warren... No, there's a, there's a, there's there's, be a there's lot, a lot here with, with Grant. With, with Warren's kind of like, not to us. I think we're both going to agree by the end that Warren was treated very unfairly by everybody. Yes. Yeah. Like he was. And so, you know, there is a battle of Dinwiddie Courthouse that does eventually happen, yeah. too. And Sheridan's got his 9,000 cavalry. He's got a bunch... Like I said, he gets into Dinwiddie Station completely unopposed. He just slides right in, no problem, on the 29th. And he's thinking, all right, well, I'm going to go off to Five Forks tomorrow. Next day, we're just going to go take it because mm-hmm. there's nobody here. So, you know, whatever. So that night, Lee is going to order Fitzhughley's cavalry to Five Forks and defend that, what he anticipates, that Union movement that's going to be to Five Forks. And say what you will about Lee, Mary, is he seemed to know what the Union was doing every step along the way. He, he didn't seemed... have the troops to stop them, but he knew what they were going to do. He had figured out know? Grant by that point. Like, I think when Grant first was in command i don't think lee was too sure but i think by this point he is starting to figure him out but grant was different than any other general that lee had faced in that grant just like held on and he would not let go you know like lincoln described him as having that kind of bulldog grip you just hang on no matter how many losses or what grant was experiencing he just continued to move forward and that's that's how grant lived his life was in that way so but I think, yeah, you, I think you're right there. You can well, okay. note that. I'll take it. I'll take the <laughs> Fucker. But Fitzgerald will come in with his division. He's going to have Thomas Munford. He's going to have William Payne. He's going to have Thomas Munford, who we're going to talk. We'll talk more about him later on. But they're going to roll in on the night of the 30th, and it's still raining. It's still raining. It just rains, right? Yeah. The 30th comes, and Sheridan's going to still, is going to go to, he's going to go to Thomas Devon, another Gettysburg guy. He's going to send his division of five forks anyway. He's going to go try to take those intersections. And this is when Devon does bump into Fitzley's cavalry. 
So the Battle of Dinwiddie Station is basically going to be a cavalry battle. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have guys like Thomas Rosser and, and Rui Lee's division. There's going to be some guys coming in, but Devin's going to be surprised by this, and he's going to ultimately get pushed back until the next day, which will go to the 31st. And guess what? It's still raining. Yep, it is. It's still raining, oh. and the Battle of Dinwiddie Courthouse is going to end up being like a tactical victory from the Confederates. Yeah, I mean, Sheridan is going to basically send two of Devin's brigades yep. towards Five Forks and two of got George Crook's division. And they're going to guard those pair of Fords. They're, they're going to basically send Crook's to guard to protect the Union left flank. And they're going to send Devin in to try to attack. Charles Smith's brigade under Crook is going to basically be dismounted because they can't ride because the weather's so bad. They got those Spencer repeaters, mm-hmm. right? And they're going to be they're going to try to be firing away to try to hold off Fitzley's attack. It goes back and forth and back and forth for most of the day. But to your point, the Union does fall back towards Dinwiddie Courthouse. They just can't sustain it. So by nightfall, you know, the armies, they're kind of pushed back to where they started, but they're close together. And the Rebs, they're thinking, okay, we're going to we're gonna attack first thing in the morning. We're, we're going to go to town with this because mm-hmm. we think, you know, we think we got a, a shot here, you know. And there's a lot of things that happen on the evening of March the 31st that are going to play into not just the Battle of Five Forks, but also what happens to Warren after that as well. The Battle of Five Forks is like, you read about it in in Grant's memoirs and it seems pretty straightforward. At least that was my impression of it. And you read about other places too. And it seems like a pretty straightforward battle, but there's a lot of miscommunication that is happening. And there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes down that... uh, you know, really plays against Warren at the end of all this. Warren is ordered to go assist Sheridan with his whole corps. And Grant tells Sheridan that he says, he's like, yeah, Warren will be there by midnight. Like what? Yeah, he has what bases that are nothing. Like he doesn't have any basis for it. He doesn't know that the bridge at Gravelly Run is, is completely out and they've got to somehow repair that so that Warren can get across it. And then in his biography about Warren, Jordan says that all Grant did with this, telling Sheridan that Warren was going to be there by midnight, is give him another reason to distrust the commander of the Fifth Corps, who was Warren. Midnight came and went with no sign of Warren and his men. So the thing with this is there's a bit of background to it. We thought there was like Dallas level drama going on in Chickamauga with Bragg and his army. And after that battle, Warren and Sheridan, you're talking the two biggest egos in the Army of the Potomac at this time. I know there's other big egos out there, but these two hated each other for oh, whatever so reason. There's a phrase that says, you know, go no good deed goes unpunished. That's you've heard that's a phrase I invented. I've heard that before. But that night of the 31st, Sheridan is getting attacked at Dinwiddie. He can, and Warren yeah. can hear the guns. It's his idea to go help him. Exactly. He goes to me and it says, why don't I go help him? He says, but you know, I'd like to go, but just that bridge over gravelly is all fucked up. Uh, that that needs to be repaired before we can do it. Plus the roads suck. So we'll go. So me, it's like, okay, fine. But me will, does not tell Sheridan. He just yeah. says, he'll be there at midnight, you know? And so he says, you know, good, good idea. Tells Warren, okay, get ready to go. Leave by 9 p.m. Be ready to go. Again, this is Warren's idea. Okay, now Meade's basically saying, good idea, you know, go. But he also doesn't tell Grant that it was Warren's idea. So, okay. And so Grant tells Sheridan that, you know, Warren's going to be to your point. Be coming, they're on their way. They'll be there by midnight. But he doesn't know about the situation with the roads. And he certainly doesn't know what to worry about the bridge. So there's Sheridan. 
he's sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. So he has no idea where, she, where Warren is. He has no clue himself about the roads, but the bridge. Because yes, how the hell is he going to know? About 11 p.m., Meade learns about the bridge's problem. So he must have been watching 11 o'clock news, saw the report, because that's how he probably found out. He also learns, too, that the Rebel Cavalry under William Roberts are basically posted along that White Oak Road to slow Warren down. Warren's like, all right, I'll go. Meade does say, why don't you try an alternative route? And Warren says, nah, I'm not going to go this way. At the end of the day, what you have is a bad road with no bridge and cavalry trying to snipe at you. So you're going to be slowed down. The bridge gets repaired by 2 o'clock in the morning. So now it's the April 1st, April Fool's Day. And the army's going to march all night. Ayers, his first elements are going to start to arrive around dawn at Sheridan's headquarters. It's going to kind of have a domino effect, too, because Pickett's going to see these reinforcements coming. And he's going to say, well, let's get the hell out of here. So he's going to back to Five Forks. And so, again, it's that dance getting pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. Yeah. You know, early, early morning, Sheridan's going to basically, he goes to Warren. He says, listen, Pickett's retreating. We're going to report he's retreating now. You need to go get him. He's retreating. Go hit him. Which was also Warren's idea, by the way. Because his, his idea is, I'm going to get there. It's going to force Pickett to retreat. We're going to hit him on the retreat. And Warren gets no credit for that idea either. And so he begins, Warren begins to personally position guys like Charles Griffin and Samuel Crawford to get in position to do it. But those road things do take their toll. And this is where the first, the real blame starts. So Sheridan's like, you know what, something, where the hell is he? Because he's, we have all these plans, you know, Saturday night, no one knows where anybody is, you know, one of those deals, right? And so Sheridan's going to blame Warren for basically being slow, basically letting this happen. So now it turns into, look what you did. We had a chance, and you didn't, and you blew it. And he doesn't really ask why, you know, Warren, you did move slowly and carefully, admittedly, because he also expected they could be, it's nighttime, they could mm-hmm. hit the Rebs at any moment. But the other thing that gets him to, and this is the thing, is while they were marching, he's in the back with Crawford. He's not in the front with Ayers. And you know yep. who rats him out? Chamberlain. Chamberlain. Yep, because Chamberlain, Chamberlain's the first to get to Sheridan. Yep in the morning and Sheridan just says to him, why did you not come before? Where is Warren? And Chamberlain's like, general, we are withdrawing from the white Oak road. Uh, We just had a fucking fight there. Uh, He's bringing up the last of his division. And, and Sheridan is the type of guy that is like, you need to be out in front of your men, you know, and he's just not, he's not having any of this shit. And it's funny, Jordan, the way Jordan writes about this part, it's basically that, that Sheridan woke up in a fucking bad mood and Chamberlain got the full brunt of Sheridan's bitchy mood. He did. And Chamberlain, in his defense, he did try to calm Sheridan down. He did try to explain the road, the bridge. And at that point, Sheridan's probably like, whatever, you know. So 6 o'clock in the morning, April 1st. So Meade's chief of staff, you know, Alexander Webb, his names keep coming up, right? Yeah. He basically orders Warren, says, listen, you need to go see Sheridan, get your orders, because he's pissed. Just go see him. Warren gets the message around 9 o'clock in the morning. So another slow line at the Duncans for old, for old Warren. Yeah, he doesn't go see Sheridan until 11. Which just 11 o'clock in that, the morning. That's something that Warren, he can't account for that part of it. So this is something that is definitely Warren is at fault for this. Like, for whatever reason, he's not showing up for it, you know, and he probably should have went right away. Yeah, no, no one know, knows where he was. Because he's two all, hours. He Sheridan does not need any reason at this point to do any more shit to him. The other thing to remember in all this is the one person that Sheridan takes orders from is Grant. That's it. He's yeah. He does not take orders from Meade. Sheridan does not want anything to do with taking orders from Meade 
at all. So this is kind of like, it's an interesting dynamic that is playing out here. Kind of like sort of, there's a little bit of mean girls going on. It's, it's, the, it's, like, it's, the, it's the mean girls in the cafeteria. It's very here, fucking not, catty. Know, like, like the cheerleaders aren't talking to the, to the, the history nerds like no. us. Say, all right, no. So, you know, Sharon and Field, he finally gets the band together at Dinwiddie Station. He basically, and he, he has his plans. He literally takes out his sword. And he draws dirt the plan, just like yeah. in the movie, right? He draws with a scabbard on, on the sand what he wants to do. This is part of the problem, though, is Sheridan's plans to attack Five Forks are screwed up right from the beginning because his intelligence is wrong. Mm-hmm. So he tells Warren, he's in charge of the Fifth Corps, the rebel lines are longer than they actually are. Not the first guy to embellish that, by the way, Mayor. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> but, what, but what he didn't do is he didn't double-check the line, the Confederate line, because he didn't want to get seen. He didn't want to reconnoiter and get, get spotted. So they, they assumed what they were was where they, he thought they were. He basically thought the line extended three quarters of a mile longer to the east than it really did. So he set his entire plan in the dirt with his sword on wrong intel. So you can, you can see, you can see where this is going. Oh, right, it, it's, right? it, and not only that. So before he tells him his plan, Sheridan totally chews Warren out. Because Warren arrives and Sheridan's like, what the fuck were you kind of thing? And, and Warren's like, he just said, we've had rather a field day of it since yesterday morning. And then Sheridan just stands up and says, do you call that a field day? Like just told, and Warren's like, okay, just not, it's so dramatic, you know? And then as you said, Darren, he is going, Sheridan is going on bad intel. And that's when Warren goes to start setting up his troops based on this intel that Sheridan is giving him. No, the one, but the one thing about Warren is he has been criticized and that Warren does do this, that he sometimes questions what his commanders are doing. And at this point, Sheridan is the one in command. Warren does question it. But in this case, he just goes and does it. He gets them set up. Sheridan tells him to. He thinks, well, this is the order. So meanwhile, on the other side of the coin, you get old George Pickett. He's back at Five Forks, basically guessing where the Union was organizing his force. It's basically, he knew they were probably going to attack him on his left flank. And he was right about that. That's what he was guessing. I mean, so he asked Bobby Lee for reinforcements, which, of course, don't come. Lee, he's also pissed, right? Uh, well, allegedly. So Lee says that. That message to you know to pick it. He says, "Hold five forks at all hazards. Protect the road to Ford's Depot and protect and prevent Union forces from striking the South Side of Railroad." But then this is where it gets interesting. He says, "I regret exceeding your forces' withdrawal and your ability to hold the advantage you gained." Okay, but here's the thing, though. You know who said that quote? Reported that quote was Pickett's wife after he died. So you know he even she even said they even said that. But if you read that quote, it's basically saying, "Listen, you had you had the White Oak Road, you had, but you blew it. You had it, and you got pushed back. Don't screw this up now." Basically, it's like you know, don't let the family down. So this is like you know what this is. This is like a lot at the end of a long day at work. And the day of work is the Civil War, and everyone's in a shitty mood. Yeah, just just get this. They're, they're, they're cratchety. You know what I mean? Very very cratchety. Kind of like you know, some people I know on a Tuesday at six o'clock at night. But but five forks in the mid morning at that point, the Rebs start to build their line. So, and this is the problem too with this where this terrain comes in. You're talking about it's been raining for a couple of days. Yep. You've got really a crappy place to build a defense. They're trying to build these weak breastworks. There's no really place to put them. They're doing like one log because they can't stack them on top of each other. But also Pickett's thinking, you know what? We might be just fighting cavalry here. Because we haven't really even seen the infantry, and we don't know. So they don't know why the White Oaks Road is that battles happened. They don't, don't know what the story is. So they're kind of basically not sure what they're going to get. He positions William Pegram's artillery 
23 years old. That's all he is. Mm-hmm. William Pegram. He's a interesting cat. That one, by the way, William Pegram. He was, uh, he was 18. He was at John Brown's raid at Harpers Ferry and watched the execution with old John Wilkes Booth. Very religious in the head. He felt that the South's victory in the Civil War was God-ordained. He went through the entire Civil War at that point without being injured once. He said it was God was protecting him the whole time. Well, he's going to find out the hard way. But he's a guy who uh, he enlisted right after Sumter. He was the one who had that quote where as soon as John Brown's raid happened, all those militias filled up in Virginia. That was the beginning of the Confederate Army. That's who had that quote. Mm -hmm. But basically, you know, he's put in a really dangerous position. But Pickett's line is going to extend east to west, north, and that white oak road. So he's going to have his cavalry on both flanks. going to have Fitzhugh on one side. He's going to have a guy near Rufus Barrier on the other side. And he's going to arrange his infantry basically right to left. He's going to have Montgomery Chase, Robert Mayo, George Marilyn Stewart, the Gettysburg guy, William Henry Wallace, and Matthew Ransom. So he's going to have a pretty good line right north, right along parallel to that White Oak Road. So he's sort of ready, but he has no real good defensive position. He also has no idea who the hell he's going to be fighting, no idea what the situation is going to be on the other side. Yeah, and and eventually... This is where Pickett decides that there's not going to be a battle. There's, there's that too. So he, yeah. he he basically, he falls asleep at the switch here in a little bit. So, mm-hmm. but you know what though? He should have though, because earlier at dawn that morning, mm-hmm. you know, Custer, his cavalry division yep. is reporting that they've verified that they did pull back to Five Forks. Sheridan's going to order the cavalry under um, Merritt to basically go chase Pickett down at Five Forks. So he's going to do it. The ground's wet and they can't ride. So they do, they dismount, but they do hit that rebel right flank at the beginning they do report back customers that the line's too strong for cavalry right there. So around noontime, you know, this is kind of where you start to see the, you know, the cafeteria talk starting. So yeah. noontime on the first, maybe you thought it was an April Fool's joke. We don't hmm. know. Orville Babcock, who's a staff officer and a grant, he's going to tell Sheridan, listen, you know, um, if you want to get rid of Warren, you knock yourself out. If you want to get rid of him, send his ass back to headquarters. We totally cool. And totally cool. That is all Sheridan needed. And again, what is happening here is bad intel. So Grant is basing this order off of some bad intel that he got from some of Warren's men. Grant wants to know where the 5th Corps is, so he sends an artillery captain named E.R. Warner, who is actually sent by Rollins, to see where the the 5th Corps is. So he finds Wainwright and Colonel Fred Locke. Locke is the 5th Corps adjutant, and Warren had told them to get some sleep and then rejoin the Corps in the morning. The last Locke had heard is that the bridge over Gravelly Run was still out and that it was going to be repaired. That was what he knew before he went to sleep. So of course he's he's waking up and he's being asked, "Where's the fifth core?" You know, and he's like, "Oh, the bridge over Gravelly Run is still out." And he tells Warner this. He's like, "So Warren's probably a little bit delayed." So Warner returns to Rollins, who tells this to Grant, and Grant is not happy, and that's when he issues the orders to Sheridan that he can relieve Warren of command. As you said, sends Orville Babcock to tell Sheridan that, uh, yeah. If you want to remove him from command, you go right the fuck ahead and do that. It's well, that what's is funny is it's Sheridan says, you know what? No, he says at this point he says, you know what? Tell Babcock it's not necessary. It's totally fine. Yeah. Warren doesn't know this until someone leaks the info to him. You know who t- leaks the info to him? Chamberlain. Chamberlain. He's well, apparently is apparently is that is that is the only <laughs> he's passing the notes in class. Oh my guess God. what? So, so Chamberlain is going to tell him, you know, just so you know, they're going to fire in your ass, right? And so, and like, what? he's like, no, what, what the hell? In a nutshell, Sheridan's plan is very basic. He's going to basically, he wants Custer to basically feign to the left of that rebel right yeah. flank, along with Henry Capehart. Warren's going to basically attack that rebel left flank. That's going to allow Thomas Devon's oh. cavalry to make that frontal attack. 
as soon as he hears Warren's attack starts, then Devin's going to attack the middle. That's basically in a nutshell what the plan is. Yeah. But so one o'clock, this is kind of starting to formulate itself, kind of ready to go. Warren gets his orders to move his core, go to a place called the Basso Farm. He explains the whole situation. He says, listen, he has to deal with these roads, this marsh, the land. It's, it's a friggin' mess. So he's told to advance the entire army. This is where Sheridan's probably right. He does not want to attack piecemeal. He wants to go full banana in. Mm-hmm. He wants to do two division front, 12,000 guys, with his third in reserve. So he's going to have Sam Wiley Crawford first. He's going to have Griffin second and Ayers in reserve. But he wants them all going. But the problem with this is this entire plan is based on where they think the Rebs are, and they're not there. No, they're not. Ayers and Crawford start to move their men forward, and Griffin is behind them. And when they reach the White Oak Road with the Gravelly Run Church Road intersection, they find that the Confederate lines don't reach that far. And this is not what Sheridan had indicated to Warren at all. So, you know, Warren's got to kind of be like, what the fuck are we going to do now? We've got to get the men turned a certain way and get them going back towards where the Confederate lines actually end because this is, we're too far out to be able to do this. So Warren is having to deal with Crawford's men and getting them turned around. So he sends a message to Sheridan and he says, tell him the enemy's lines are broken and I am in full pursuit. And Sheridan responds to Locke, um, because that's who Warren sends. Tell General Warren, by God, I say he wasn't at the front. And that's all I've got to say to him. So then Crawford is going through swamps to get into a different position. And keep in mind, it's been raining. So I can't imagine what that was like. Who knows what he encountered? Snakes, clowns. You know there was clowns. There was definitely you know there was clowns. clowns. Probably snakes too. Been in that part of Virginia. There's clowns. <laughs> and so Warren gets word of Sheridan's little outburst, and he grabs the core flag and he just says, "Now, boys, follow me. This will be the last fight of the war." And he rides straight towards the rebel lines. And this is where he has his horse shot and killed right from under him. And a man from the 7th Wisconsin, Colonel Holen Richardson, is wounded as he tries to shield Warren as he falls to the ground from his horse. And But the thing that this does is the men do follow Warren and they manage to drive off Corse's brigade and take many prisoners. Well, the thing is, too, is while I was all going on... It, it, before they all get started, they're all kind of they're, they're trying to set this this whole thing up because they all want to attack at the yeah. one time. They don't get there all at the same time, and so this is where again where you can make a case of Warren did well. So Warren's like, I've only got one core now. I've only got one division. Do you want me to start now? Because it, it's you know because Sheridan says he was very upset that the wait the battle took so long. He wanted to get going before sunset, and so Warren's gonna look. I got you know I got one set here. I can go and. and Basically, Sharon goes, nope, let's wait for everybody. This is all kind of all going down. But this is while this is starting, and this is this is right when the unions just kind of getting started, the, the cavalry's kind of pushing back. Thomas Rosser, who's the uh, division commander under Fitzhugh Lee, this is when he invites Lee and Pickett to that shad bake. And so they both accept. The thing about it was interesting about this was this even after Fitzhugh Lee, this is he'd he'd already heard the reports that some of his rebel cavalry under Roberts was already being hit by the Union Cavalry. So they knew something was up. So Lee orders basically Thomas Mudford, this is Fitzhugh Lee now, not Robert E. Lee, to, to go up and see what's going on. Just let's go up there and, you know. So Mumford says, yep, absolutely. He says that while Pickett and Fitzhugh Lee are going back towards Hatch's Run for that lunch, 
So Pickett's gone. Rudy Lee was a senior officer in charge differently. They're all, all the leaders are all there, right? But the thing about it, though, is he's all the way on the right flank, and he doesn't know that Pickett's not there. So he doesn't know he's in charge, and no one knew that Pickett and Fitzgerald Lee were in the back, and no one knew who was supposed to do what. And so when this is probably around 4 o'clock, 4 o'clock yeah. in the afternoon, so they're all set back. Ayers finally arrives in line, and this is, this is when they finally start going. And to your point earlier, they, they, they start going. They find that the rebel line was about 800 yards to the west of where they thought it was. That's a long, that's a long that way. Is, it's yeah. tough to miss that, especially even back then, it's tough to miss that. So it basically, you know, you're going to have Crawford, uh, Griffin, and Ayers kind of sweeping around, and they're all going to be going off to Never Never Land. They're all going to go off. So two of the three divisions, two of the three are going in the wrong direction, way too far east, but they're in a position to hit the rebel flank. This is where you, this is kind of the, the dumb luckiest, right? They're going too far to the right, but because of that, they end up getting around the rebels. And so Ayers is going to start taking hits on his left flank. And he's like, well, I guess that's where they are. You know, they're going to basically, they're going to start going up there and start directing these guys around. So Sheridan, to your point, is going to ride up. He's going to do his whole thing. He's going to encourage the men. At this point, it's complete complete chaos ransom soldiers who is right on the right flank is getting now they're getting whipped yeah and there's that quote by one of ransom soldiers he says the yankees simply ran us over which i think was the same core as the indians in the playoffs last year if i remember correctly one playoff game i think remember correctly as now, i but... recall your socks didn't do very well either they didn't, they didn't lose one game in the playoffs last year mm, that's interesting and you know the guys went the 190th Pennsylvania. They they jumped the rebel line. They were the first put the flag down. And but you know but Sher- Sheridan, you know, say what you will about him, but he was up front. He yep. he personally captured a bunch of guys. He jumped over that parapet with, with his horse and captured a bunch yep, of guys. That, that that's which, the type of soldier that he was. And that's like it is risky to be that way. You know, because you look at the ones that put themselves out front, like Reynolds, Albert, Sidney Johnson, they end up getting killed. And in some cases, you know, like somebody like Hancock ends up getting wounded, right? And um, basically out of commission. That's just how Sheridan is. And that's not how Warren, Warren wasn't really like that. Warren was very, very cautious. But, but Sheridan believed that all officers should be out in front. And at one point, he didn't see Warren out in front. And that's when he mm-hmm. makes that remark to change, to to um, that one guy like I don't see Warren out in front so that is why Warren puts himself out in front gets his horse shot out from under him like Warren risks his life and I don't think that was something Warren had ever done before so again it's an example of like you know it's kind of like Garnett at Pickett's Charge right I have to redeem myself you never climbed that rock at Little Round Top it's very risky in life because I guarantee (laughs) he's risked his life climbing that rock (laughs) But, but we'll, we'll, find, we'll find out more about Warren because he's going to be catching up with Crawford later yep. on. Griffin and Crawford are basically lost. I don't want to say lost in the woods, but they're just they're they're a rudderless ship right now. Mostly Crawford, to be honest. But you know, Sheridan is basically sending messages to them saying, "Get over, get a, get an Ayers right, please, because just you know, you can we can push him." When Warren basically goes to chase them down. And this is where Warren doesn't get enough credit, which is kind of where we're going with this, was was he's going to go out and he's going to go find these guys. He's going to personally go out and find these yeah. guys. He's going to find Crawford, tell them where to go. They're going to get pushed by Munford a little bit, but they they still end up too far to the right. But Griffin, who does get found by Warren too, the funny part about him is he knew they were lost because they marched a mile too far and didn't find the guys. I'm like, we, this can't be right. Yeah. Because, you know, but the rebels, you know, they get danger of being flanked and attacked in the rear. Chamberlain, his brigade, again, he's, he's going to basically jump in and he's going to catch 1,500 men. He's, he's going to basically catch a bunch. And this is it's good thing about this. Chamberlain looks good on this one because he's going to, not only that, but he's going to catch 200 Union 
stragglers mm-hmm. and bring them back in the line. I don't know if he had a big teary speech like he did in that movie, but he got 200 guys to come back and fight again. So he's going to he's going to do well. The rebel line, of course, at this point is going to completely collapse. Sheridan is going to order Chamberlain to he's going to, to command the infantry at this point mm-hmm. and push towards Five Forks along with Ayers and Griffith. But Warren's still out looking for Crawford. And poor, you know, Sam Wiley Crawford's pretty good. I mean, it's, it's just, he's, he's just lost. Well, he's in swamp. Um, he's he's the one that's going through all the swamps, right? He like, is. He's... All I can picture is that scene in Blazing Saddle. They're walking through the desert. They're, yeah. they're lost, right? While Warren is looking for Crawford, and this is where you get shitty luck. While Warren's looking for Crawford, Sheridan's looking for Warren. Okay, and he's like, "Well, where's Warren? I don't know. Who know who the hell he is?" He's got that thing in the back of his head, like, "Well, he was lost last night, so what the hell?" He's going to order Griffin to take over the Fifth Corps. Yep. He's going to say, "You know what? You're you're in charge. We'll deal with him later." But Warren does finally find Crawford, and he redirects him back to Five Forks. And so, kind of a yeoman's effort to do that, but he did that personally to do it. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's too bad, but I mean, Pickett, you know, he's sitting there and he has two pickets from Munford's cavalry come running back, and they tell Pickett what's going on at this point, and it fits you, Lee. And they couldn't hear the battle because that acoustic shadow, yeah, which happens sometimes when things you right next door you can't hear it. Pickett sees the Union line coming at him, and he begs the cavalry, "Oh, can you please just slow them down? We got to get out of here." It's got him Captain John Breckenridge is going to jump on his horse and charge the Union line. He's going to get killed. But it does give Pickett time to escape a little bit. Fitzhugh Lee is going to deploy his division on the north of the Hatcher's Run, right near the big lunch place, right near the big uh, Red Lobster where they have the big shad bake. And because they wanted to keep that forge road open because that was their escape route out. So Pickett, you know, pulls is you have to pull troops from your front to protect your back. Yeah. So that's never a good thing. The lines are completely falling apart. Eventually, they got to finally pull back, and it ends up being a, a, a complete mess. Is what it ends up. It's being. a huge clusterfuck. But this is where you know where Pegram we talked before at the very beginning yeah. of this. This is where he's going to meet his demise, right? He's got three guns right up the west of that forge road. He's riding between the guns, trying to get his guys through. You know, get his guys in. Keep yeah. firing. He's going to get mortally wounded. It was his first injury, like I said, first injury yeah. he ever got. And he had that been sleeping, he right? Like, hadn't Pickett told him just to have a nap? And then they woke up when the battle. They woke him up when the battle had started, and he got on his horse, and he was like, "Okay, hey, gotta go." That's the thing: is the final charge is led by Warren. Warren, you know, he finds Crawford's division. They're chilling in the woods, maybe doing some whittling. What they're doing, okay. <laughs> They're not attacking Corse's breastworks as they're ordered. Yeah. This is the, you know, Crawford's going to have a goat in this one. Warren's going to take that core flag yeah. you were saying earlier. He's going to ride in the front. He's going to get them all going, do the horse shot thing. That's going to help get them going. It's going to push them through. Warren's going to send an aide to tell Sheridan to your quote about the whole the thing before about tell Warren by God he was not on the front. And this is kind of unfair because yeah. I think it's a perception. I think with this battle with Sheridan and Warren, Warren wasn't going to do anything right with this one. It just no, wasn't. No, it was set up from the beginning to be that way because apparently Grant and Sheridan had a meeting beforehand, um, you know, to talk about what the strategy was going to be for the for getting to Five Forks. And this was happened in late March. But yeah, like, you know, just Warren grabbing that flag, which seems so, I think, was kind of uncharacteristic to him. But it led his men. But he's doing that because he knows that Sheridan has, has said of him, I've seen Warren, he's not out at the front. You know, because that's Sheridan just expected him to be, you know, he thought officers should be out at the front, which is, that's very reckless. We saw what happened to Reynolds with that, as well as, you know, Lytle at Chickamauga. 
and Albert Sidney Johnson at Shiloh, like it is a very reckless thing to do. Like, yeah, you can rally your men, but you know, again, this kind of goes back to Warren feels like, okay, I've got to redeem myself now because this guy thinks I'm not doing my job. So I'll put myself out there and lead my men. But I mean, it worked. He captures a lot of prisoners. Well, this. it's a perceptuous reality thing. I mean, he, he thinks yeah. there's no way he hit those troops, but he's up front leading. He's like, no, he's not, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, but, you know, you know as, as, night, as the battle goes, it, night's going to eventually fall. And it's only a two-hour battle. It's not a long yep. battle. Custer's going to try to chase the ribs down, but they're going to get away. They're going to get over that, that forge road. They're going to basically cross the Appomattox, and they're going to find their way back to the Army of Northern Virginia. But the interesting thing about this is is the ramifications that come afterwards, right? Yeah. For both sides, because you can imagine how pissed off people, you can imagine how pissed off Lee is, right? You know, Lee wants no part when he finds out this whole thing. He wants no part of Pick anymore. He's no. had it. No. You know, there's that story where, you know, he he thinks he's he thinks he he fires Pickett, and then a week or so later, he sees Pickett ride by him on his horse. Yep. He says to his adjutant, uh, I assume it was probably Taylor. He says, "What is that man still doing with this army?" So he has the impression that he would they got rid of him, and I don't know what happened with that. But big one is Sheridan and Warren because remember before how Grant kind of gave him permission to fire him, and he said no. Well, now he's going to change his mind. Yep, and that happens around seven o'clock. That Warren gets relieved of command, and Griffin is officially put in charge of the Fifth Corps. Warren finds out about this, and. The order is Major General Warren commanding the 5th um, Army Corps is relieved from duty and will report at once for orders from Lieutenant General Grant commanding the armies of the United States. And Warren is kind of like, what the fuck? Like, what? why? And Warren probably did think, what the fuck? Because <laughs> Warren was one of the um, more colorful language users of the Army, the Potomac. Uh, next yeah, he to asked him to reconsider. Yeah, he did. He, he goes to him and says, like, can you reconsider this? And Sheridan says, reconsider hell. I never reconsider my decisions. Obey the order. So Sheridan never <laughs> reconsiders his decisions. Maybe that's why he always wore the same hat. He couldn't reconsider it. That's a good hat, though. A lot of Warren's subordinates are going to try to defend him after they this. They do. Even, well, even Warren, long after the war. And they Warren's do have men that, they really have... respected him. If you... Well, I mean, well, they saw they him at the front of the line. I mean, they, I mean, they did. And, I mean, in, in Sheridan's defense, he was the front of the line, too. They weren't... He wasn't sitting back. No. But, I mean, they, they, you know, when... When this thing kept going on and on, they had they had that 1883 conference to talk about this long after the war, mm -hmm. and they basically said Sheridan's removal of Warren was completely unjust. But Warren, he didn't care at that point. He was just, you know what? He's like, you know what the hell with this? He was completely irate, and he never got over it yeah. to the point that when he dies, he does he refuses to be buried in military uniform. He's buried in civilian's uniform. His grave, I've been there, is very nondescript. Mm -hmm. You know, it just says, I, I think it says literally, here lies General G.K. Warren, fuck Sheridan. But he just wanted no part. A lot of these guys, I mean, you, you see a lot of these these general graves and, you know, pick one. They're all de very decorated with what, what they want to say. Mm -hmm. You could tell Warren, and you feel kind of sad when you're there, too. Because this is a guy, he had no reputation of being a coward at any point. No. You know, people know him from Gettysburg, right? From helping get the troops from getting stone, you know, strong Vincent, the fifth corps up there. It's kind of ironic that the fifth corps is the one who kind of doomed him at the end. I know. Right. With this, yeah. but, but he didn't deserve what he got with this. No. And he's somebody who I think was put in a bad place, the bad time. And when you consider it was his idea to support Sheridan that doomed him and he did everything, almost everything right. There was really nothing you could egregiously say he did wrong. There was no counter march with this. There was no 
you know, mud march for the most part. There was, I mean, there was, he was going on information that was bad intel given to him from Sheridan's staff, and he still executed the order because the order was attack the front, get around the rear, mm-hmm. and they ultimately achieved every one of their goals. But it wasn't going to be enough for Sheridan. Sheridan wasn't going to put up with it. No one. You could just tell. Grant and Sheridan, unfortunately, headed in for Warren. You can see it in the way Grant writes in his memoirs. You know, he's very much, he doesn't really, I mean, Jordan, it's really funny in his biography of Warren refers to Sheridan as Grant's pet. He's very critical of Grant and Sheridan in this. And I mean, I do agree with the criticism. Like Warren is an arrogant asshole. He really is. But he's also, he's very talented in his own right. And he did not deserve this kind of treatment that he got. Like Warren to me is, he is the other hero of Little Round Top. You know, Chamberlain would not have been able to do what he did without Warren's, Warren finding, you know, that position that day. So after he gets fired, or not fired, he gets relieved of command. Warren goes to see Grant and Grant basically says, yeah, it was my idea. I think really well of your judgment, but you know what? You question orders before you execute them. You don't play well with others and you doubt your superiors and you interfere with your subordinates as well. So you're, you're kind of causing shit here. Warren has done that. He is guilty of doing that. But the thing is, is Warren was not guilty of doing that with Sheridan at this battle at all. He was I think legitimately trying to help Sheridan out, but this was a case of like, let's make it personal. And as you said, Darren, Warren's men do not agree with it. They rally behind him. And one of his men was quoted as saying, one thing is certain that he always had the respect and confidence of his troops and his courage is of the highest order. He's very respected as being the commander of the fifth Corps. And Grant says in his memoirs that he was very much dissatisfied with Warren's movements in the Battle of White Oak Road and his failure to reach Sheridan in time that I was very much afraid in the last moment he would fail Sheridan. So that right there is we know from how things play out that is not (laughs) Grant's kind of twisting the truth a little bit in his memoirs Mm -hmm. with that. He's, you know, the historical memory of this battle is not. What Grant's writing is different, I think, a little bit from other accounts of the battle. The one thing that, funny quote from Chamberlain that I found is he said, we're Warren a mind reader. He should have known it was a time to put a warmer manner towards Sheridan at this battle. So basically, don't be the usual shit disturber you are. Another guy, uh, Colonel Charles Morgan, who was chief of staff for the 2nd Corps, told Warren the cards were stacked against you. You could do nothing to satisfy Grant or Sheridan in the frame of mind they were in. Too many egos in the kitchen with this one. There's no yep. question about it. But at the end of the day, it's a mission. It's a clear black and white victory for the Union on this one. It is. I mean, they, it, this is a five forks collapsing, the South Side Railroad basically collapsing, taking away the last supply route in and out of Petersburg. That's the end. And so... Not to spoil the surprise, I don't want to give it away for you, Mary, but it's a few weeks later, you're going to see Robert E. Lee is going to surrender to Maddox because he has no supplies. You've got Sherman doing his thing in the South. He's going to cut off the Wilmington Railroad, so there's going to be no supplies coming from there. And now this railroad is going to be cut out, and they're going to be starved out. They try to escape. Once Five Forks falls, this is when he's going to tell Jeff Davis, listen, we're going to try to get out of here tonight. You should probably try to evacuate tomorrow. It's when he gives him that note when Jefferson Davis is sitting in the church and says, you should evacuate the city because it's yep. all coming down. Evacuate the dance um, floor. It's going down. And that's going to begin the, the mass retreat that's going to end up at Appomattox on April 9th. 
which is going to bring the, around the end of the Army of Northern Virginia. It's going to send Jeff Davis on his Danville run, the whole escape thing. If Five Forks doesn't happen, it, 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 it doesn't change the end of the battle. No, it doesn't. But what it does for the most part, this is when they sit there and they finally said, we've been saying all along, James Longstreet saying, not yet, don't quit, not yet. Now they're saying, yeah, you know what? Because now they got no supplies. Pets' heads have fallen off. You know, everything, right? It's it's not going to last at this point. And Five Forks really is, and that's why they called the Waterloo the Confederacy. That was the end. Yep. Now the Confederacy had taken a mortal blow, many a battle before, and they were just bleeding out. But this was the one that really was the nail in the coffin. That really forced Lee to to really basically start to think about it. So, as far as MVPs go with this one, Mary, it, it's tough to say. You, you got to think positively about a guy like Chamberlain in this one. Mm-hmm. Even he gets a lot of credit for Antietam, especially Gettysburg. But this is one that he does very, very well with. He does. Certainly Warren is one that that's really gets under undervalued in this one. So I, I, I tell you what, I because I have my Chamberlain mug, Mary, I'm going to go with Chamberlain for my hero, okay? And you could pick any goat. I mean, for, you know what? I, I think I think as much – and here's the thing what's interesting, though. And you want to talk about your historical memory, Mary. When you think Shadbake, you think of who, right? Pick it. Who don't you think of? Fitz, Look at Fitzhugh Lee. Yeah, Why exactly. I was just thinking of okay. Fitzhugh Lee. He doesn't get – like he – he's also one that says, yeah, let's fucking go with some shad and bourbon. He's the, he's the one who has – you know, when Rasha says, hey, there's something going on up front here. He goes, go see what it is. We're going to go east. That is yeah. a picket who does that. Exactly. Yeah, picket right? does. So, it's, it's, so it's, it's funny how that works out, by the way, Mary. Just saying. No, it is. And I, yes, I am one that has really joked around a lot about picket and the shad in this. But, you know, researching this, looking at it more in depth, like Fitzhugh Lee. Yeah, he definitely. It's Fitzhugh Lee's adjutant who invites him. Exactly. Yeah. Somebody, but, but why again, do you think that is that nobody's saying anything wrong about Fitzhugh and picking Pickett, uh, right? Because of Pickett's charge, so. right? Again, against the, again, it, it's that <sighs> historical memory. You wonder why he was so pissed off after the war at Lee. I know. Why. This is exactly but, why he, you know, he came to live in Canada for a while. Oh, God. I never get that. Things I'm never going to get that bad, hopefully. But, but no, it's very serious though. But, but Pickett deserves a lot of credit, a lot of, shit to him because i mean he he was yeah. the one who was really in charge i mean he was i always got a kick out of that how fitz never gets mentioned but the shadow no. it's always pick it it's always pick it but that's okay that's no, okay but that's that, the way life again is. but then that again that's the historical memory right and that's the one thing that we're trying to you know we talk about that a lot in this podcast and it's kind of to, to show there, there's other people in play here you know with this like Fitzhugh lee was as much to blame for this as Pickett. This gets, I think, on the Union side of things, it, it's seen as a victory. So, yay, that's great. But what we don't look at is, um, you know, what happens to Warren at the end of this. And and Chamberlain, he's awesome at this, like, through the whole Appomattox campaign. Like, after Lewis Farm, you know, Chamberlain does so well at that uh, battle that Warren tells him, General, you have done splendid work. I am telegraphing the president. So, clearly, Warren holds Chamberlain in very high regard. But I think my hero of this battle, my MVP, is going to be Warren because he just mm-hmm. he does a lot. And as much as um, <laughs> much as a prick that Warren was, he's arrogant. Yes, he did question his superiors' orders, and he questioned his sometimes his subordinates, and sometimes he often didn't trust people. But but I think here he saw it as being the end of the war, you know, and he doesn't get 
the credit that he deserves for this. And I think Sheridan gets to have more of that credit. And I think that's really unfair. It does. And he took it, he took it to the grave, unfortunately. And yep. people will always will associate him with Gettysburg, who really, he really is, the, by the way, speaking of both of them, Ward is the hero of Little Round Top. Right? The, the movie Gettysburg put it on Chamberlain, but, but, but up, up until 1993, the hero of Little Round Top was General well there's a reason but, um, why his stat there you know his statue was up there but he's also the one that like had he not went up there and found that position who knows how it would have yep. went never know we'll never know well i think five forks is uh is definitely have a bow tied in that one so we can move on to the bigger and better things as they say so what's next um we are gonna spend a couple episodes in shiloh oh that's right or as i call it pittsburgh landing <laughs> So we'll be we'll be talking two weeks. We'll be doing a, a twofer on this one, as yeah, I understand it, we from, from the website. Yep. So we'll be uh, next week or live, and then next Wednesday is sure. can you believe it, man? Our book week, club. Wednesday. We're finally here for our first can book club meeting. Yep. Book club will be taking place a week from the thirty first, so that's coming up. So and then we were going to we will talk uh, two weeks in a row about the Battle of Shiloh, yep. and we will find out you know the good, the bad, and the ugly of really the, the bloody one of the bloodiest days of. It was like of, of all wars that point yep. combined up to that point. So yep. that'll be a good one. We'll talk about that. As, uh, we'll talk about Grants. We'll talk about we'll talk about Sherman. Beer guard making an appearance on this one, Mary. We yeah. certainly will. Albert Sidney we'll, Johnston. We'll talk about that. We will talk about that. So I think it's a good story. I think Five Forks is a good lesson to, to be told. I think the important thing about Five Forks is that it's those little skirmishes that lead up to it that kept pushing back and pushing back the Confederacy back. And it really was their last stand. But again, what 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 dictates the story with this one, like so many of these other ones, weather and miscommunication. That's what did them. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't. And and just when you're when you're looking at this battle, look at a whole bunch of different sources and and find out you know what the real story was behind it because there are people at this battle that don't get enough credit, and there's some people at this battle like Pickett that maybe don't need as much criticism as they get because there's other people involved too, like Fitzhugh Lee. It certainly are. It certainly are. But in case that's a great episode for that one, so we'll drop it at this point and get ready to talk about, we'll go back from the East, back to the West. We'll go back from the end of the war, back to the beginning of the war. We'll jump back and forth like we always do as we talk about the Battle of Shiloh, part one, followed by Shiloh, Shiloh part deux. And we'll be ready to go. So that's a, that's it for this. So we'll be moving on to the next one. Any final words from you, Queen of Kincardine? <laughs> no, thank you to all our listeners for all your support through these 32 episodes. And thank you to you, Darren, for being the awesome co-host you are. 32. I deal with this a 32. Oh, my you goodness. You have my oh, grumpy wow. mood swings and everything else. <laughs> bipolar roller you are, but that's okay. We'll have fun. But I think that's a great time. So on onwards to 33. So. We will uh, look forward to that one. So, again, thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate the support. We appreciate everybody jumping on the lives, our roundtables, and putting up with the shenanigans that is the Civil War Breakfast Club. Even to you, Mary Fincher, even though you're, you're pretty good yourself. No matter, oh, no matter what you, no matter what people say about you. Thank you. Anyway, guys, <laughs> until next time, have a wonderful Saturday, and we'll see you all again soon. So you're see you on the other side, as they say, and, of course, peace out. Bye, guys. 